I am Michele Bereggi, the president of Athora. My biggest leadership lesson is that a leader doesn't need to be the one making decisions for everyone. He's not the one who knows it all. A leader is the one who actually brings a group of people around him to work together with him into making eventually the right decision, which is by definition a combination of every one of the inputs that each of us can bring onto the table. Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. In this episode, we speak to Michele Boreggi. He was a senior executive at Lehman Brothers in London on the 15th of September 2008, the day the investment bank became the largest company to file for bankruptcy in US history and the catalyst for the global financial crash. In the 15 years since then, he has continued to work in the banking sector, rising to MD and head of Morgan Stanley's European insurance and pensions businesses. And then in 2018, he became the founding chief exec of Athora, Europe's fastest growing savings and retirement services businesses, according to their spiel. The business aims to plug a gap in the European market, providing guaranteed savings and investment returns for people in their retirement years. We had an interesting chat and one thing I thought was particularly good about it was he likens leadership to a decompression chamber for problems. And he says, a leader's like the pin at the top. Your job is to diffuse problems and make sure everything is brought back into a balanced perspective and a wider one than other people might see individually. So you can't complain that you have problems to fix because that's your job. So we'll check that interview out later. On to the news this week, and we are talking about the latest trend, lazy girl jobs. <laughs> it's the latest yes. in a long series of acronyms. and Yes, it's one of the number of colloquial phrases. That's, that's the word used. I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, it's been used to describe... A lot of these workplace trends that we're seeing, so you've got quiet quitting, bare minimum Mondays, rage applying, but the lazy girl job is just the latest one. It was coined by a TikTok user called Gabrielle Judge, and these are jobs that require very little effort to do well, but they provide a very comfortable salary and a much easier work-life balance. A lot of roles that would possibly be described as a lazy girl job would be in the more administrative departments or working from home marketing, that sort of thing. Many of these jobs are seen as quite a lucrative opportunity, especially given the increasing levels of stress and burnout faced by working women, particularly working mothers. But there are a lot of concerns around whether this trend is rooted in sexist stereotypes and whether we're just setting the women's movement back decades. So we asked some of our leadership readers and business experts what they thought of this trend and whether they thought it's, you know, is this the answer to workplace burnout or whether it is just a sexist stereotype. And Michelle Piver, who's a finance therapist, says, lazy girl jobs perpetuate a gendered division of labour and pay inequality, along with the childlike name that makes me cringe. It also makes me cringe as well. The attitude promotes limiting skills and business acumen, personal growth, respect and independence. All work is essential, yet encouraging minimal effort for the sake of it at the expense of limiting women's advancement is dangerous. And we have Kim Roha, who's the principal people partner at Oyster HR. She also has some issues with this trend and she says, I challenge the notion that administrative or marketing roles require very little effort to do well. Working from home does not mean not working hard. 
and underestimating the labour of administrative or support work is a systemic issue that goes back decades. It's work traditionally done by women, which means it's work that is traditionally devalued and disrespected. So there's two interesting Mm. points there. But then there were some comments that were not necessarily in favour of this, but they can understand where it's come from. So Christine Wetzler, who's the president of Pietrilla PR and Marketing, says that this idea is nothing new, but she's particularly discouraged to see that seeking fulfilment through both career and family is considered lazy. So she's coming at it from the idea of finding that work-life balance is seen as lazy. She says, I'm not lazy. What I do have, though, is a life worth living that I don't hate, a family that knows I'm there for them and work that doesn't keep me up at night because I decide what to work on and what my priorities are. And then from a psychotherapist point of view, we have Eloise Skinner, who's a psychotherapist and author, and she says that there's a self-protective nature to this trend. And she says that there's such a high demands of the working world where we have highly stressful situations brought upon by COVID, lockdown, hybrid working and the technological advancements that we're seeing as well. She says that these so-called lazy girl jobs provide a sense of stability, safety and security for a lot of people. And she also adds that for a generation that is estimated to have 10 to 12 jobs in their lifetime, Perhaps not all of them need to be high energy, hierarchy climbing positions. Maybe some periods of working life can be a little bit more relaxed. So there's quite a range of thoughts there. I mean, most of the people I think would agree that the term is quite demeaning. Mm. For me, I think it's just infantilizing, belittling and quite disrespectful. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting to see how they sort of justify the idea behind it and actually try and rationalize. Well, actually... Perhaps it's there's a reason why people are gravitating towards these roles. And, and as the psychotherapist said, that it's a way of self-preservation mm. and trying to maintain some sense of mental stability in this sort of era of burnout that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, I agree. It seems like the latest pushback against mm. hustle culture. We had quite quitting and now we've got lazy girl jobs. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I hate the term, but I don't think there's anything lazy about, as you say, Mm. deciding not to have to go all in always on your career. Mm. And it is sort of suggesting that all marketing and administrative roles are somehow beneath people is Mm. um, completely wrong. And I think that, yeah, in a world of burnout, I think people are looking, reassessing their priorities and thinking, how do they want to structure their lives? And just because you're not going all in on your career Mm. doesn't feel like... I've seen a couple of these videos on TikTok and it's interesting if you look at the sort of work-related content that was on the app, even two years ago, it was all very much about hustle culture. Mm. It was, here are the steps that you can do to maximise your day. I think a lot of them are like, here's my five to nine before my nine to five. It's like, this is how I have a set amount of time in the morning to really maximise my day. And then this is the sort of antonym to that, where you've got people advising young women and not even just young women just young people I think they call it the lazy girl job but I think I think it's more of a generational thing it's here are some jobs that you can apply for that require as minimal effort as possible or not necessarily minimal effort but ones that are less demanding on your time on your mental health but also have a great payoff and I, I think you know why wouldn't you want that because in an age where I think self-preservation and self-care is so huge. Mm. I'm not surprised that it's starting to filter into the world of work and people are actually kind of starting to see, or maybe I don't need to 
have that kind of hustle culture attitude when working yeah so not good for capitalism but good for people individually perhaps (laughs) interesting I also recently interviewed DocuSign's global chief exec. He's relatively new to the role. He joined in October 2022. And I was quite fascinated that previously he held one of Google's most high profile roles, running its $100 billion advertising business in North and South America. And then he left that position to become chief exec of DocuSign, the NASDAQ listed company that shot to fame for facilitating e-signatures during the pandemic. And it is one of the pandemic darlings which you can see it's characterized its share price, you know, started off, I think around 70 pre-pandemic. It got up to 308, I think, during the crisis and has now dropped down again to about 50. So it's had this huge rise and fall. I'm quite fascinated at anybody that's leaving a big, stable company like Google Mm. to join a pandemic darling post-pandemic. We had a really interesting chat about what he's trying to bring to the role, how he's trying to kind of broaden the perception of the business. So it's not just a one-trick pony, one e-signature. It's got kind of this wider services it can offer people, which I think is particularly important for it, given that its competitors are kind of increasingly embedding these one-time signatures into their already larger Mm systems like Adobe Sign and Hello Sign from Dropbox. And he's also had a very interesting career. He's had sort of a three-part career. He's been a venture capitalist for 10 years. He's been an entrepreneur for 10 years. And then he's worked in this big corporate job for 10 years. So he's had a, a very interesting sort of front seat, I guess, to leadership, the change of leadership over the time that he's been at the top. I think his key piece of advice for people was to make sure that you're very clear with your communication and he said, as long as you're being very clear about what people, you know, what you're thinking, where you're going, and you do that in a sort of transparent and engaging way, then people will follow. Yeah. So I found it a really interesting chat with him and particularly the sort of strategy around how he's sort of trying to change the company. So yeah. I would encourage people to go and yeah. read it. I think that point on communication is interesting. And I think that's something that throughout my interviews with chief execs as well, communication has come up a lot. And I think it's because the pandemic highlighted all sorts of cracks in a lot of businesses and I think communication was one of them and because we were forced to be more transparent with our communication when we were working from home we weren't in the office we couldn't go and speak to people in person we had to very quickly find new ways to communicate and I think fortunately a lot of those have stayed even now as we adopt a more hybrid approach and sometimes we're in the office sometimes we're somewhere else but yeah I think communication is something that every chief exec I talk to they mention Mm. about what's one of the things that they're improving and it's always one of their big pieces of advice and how you have to be completely transparent and they're realizing now that you can't do anything without having your people on board and if your people are not on board I think now as well workforces are a lot more vocal about whether they're unhappy with something Mm. and they're much more comfortable to make their voices heard whereas I think pre-pandemic it was a lot more dictatorial, whereas now I think things are completely different. Well, they're moving towards a slightly more different kind of hierarchical structure where I think the masses are not necessarily rising up. But Mm. but I I think people expect their voices to be heard Mm. more, don't they? And I think that actually that's usually a good thing for a business. And Michele talks about this a bit later, but he talks about managing risk and saying Mm. that having lots of different people from different perspectives and different backgrounds, being able to talk about something, um, how important that is for managing risk in a business. So yeah, I think it's a kind of a really fundamental shift that's I think it's been happening. And I think it will be a positive thing for businesses, although harder for managers to deal with, I'm sure, (laughs) in the short term. We also have a fun story about David Attenborough and his managerial genius, which I'll just point listeners to. And 
the one thing I particularly enjoyed about this piece was learning that he was the person who gave the green light to Pop Black, which was a snooker program that brought snooker to the masses essentially on TV. But I think it's particularly interesting because it was the advent of colour TV. So it kind of really sort of pushed and showed how how great the technology was Mm. that now you could watch snooker, which obviously you need to be very aware of what the colours are of the balls are. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little nugget that I picked up. The final thing just to talk about is that, and it's about us, Management Today's partnered with leading academics to create a range of content that introduces readers to critical thinking about leadership practice. We're calling it Classroom. It's for subscribers only. And we're just sort of synthesizing sort of academic theory in a way that will hopefully bring academic rigor to leadership practice without you having to take an MBA. So if you are interested in that, then please look at that on our site. The first piece, which is called Why Quiet Leaders Get Results, can be viewed for free. Um, the rest is all behind the paywall. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. And we'll move on to the interview with Michele Bereggi. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Michele. You are the president of Hathora. Let's just start with Hathora. What is it? What does it do? Well, it's my pleasure, Kate, and thanks for having me and Hathora. Hathora is a life insurance business that we created and started six years ago that is here to fulfill the needs of uh, European customers in the long-term savings and pension world. I think there is a, a big trend of obviously demography and in general needs that people have as they approach, you know, their older age and the age when they have more time to spend and to decide what they would like to do. And what we're here to do is to try to help them today, mainly on a financial basis to provide them with guarantees and support with respect to financial or other needs they may have in a certain part of their life. Mm-hmm. And what I think you sound like you do differently to others is that you kind of provide sort of stability or kind of a, a guaranteed almost income for the sort of rate of return on the pension investments. Is that right? That's right. And I think, yes, I think with insurance, like as every business, but everybody, every business that is there to last and to perform in the long term needs to really perform some degree of public role. And in our case, our duty and our objective is to make sure that we offer, as you say, financial protection. So we provide guarantees of return to people as they put their pensions or long-term saving plans with us. And obviously that's something that, you may say, well, it's kind of obvious because otherwise why <laughs> you would also look at preserving the value of your investment in the long part of your career. But actually, most insurance businesses don't do that anymore for a number of reasons. And so I think our reasons of actually starting Authority in 2017 or 18 was actually to be sure that we can occupy a space that is actually filling a gap that other larger players have defocused from for a number of reasons. Why have they kind of walked away from that? Well, I think if you think about the last uh, 20 years in the way of life insurance business and in general in Europe, you have a number of things that have happened. That have happened main, a lot of changes in regulations. The world has, obviously after particularly 2008, has become very different in terms of the type of and level of rates. And the market, the public market has pushed a lot of these insurance companies more generally uh, to actually refocus on what are, I would say, less financially guaranteed product because that obviously creates a different type of balance of risk and rewards between the different players with insurers and, and policyholders. And in a way, the amount of effort in the what are called capital light guaranteed that in general, the last 20 years have refocused most of the European insurance industry has basically created products that have a lower content of insurance. 
And actually, going back to the point I just made earlier, I and we collectively strongly believe that, as I said, if you are here, you need to provide some degree of public service. And in our case, the reason of an, ins of an insurance business is because you take over a risk that individuals cannot do as well by themselves. Mm. And so I think whilst the market, for a number of reasons, particularly the public market push uh, from public investors, have pushed in a different way. We have taken a different stance and our private investors are very happy and willing to support us and our policyholders in their journey. Mm. I think it's interesting if you are offering guaranteed returns, particularly in a financial market that's so volatile at the moment. What's your experience of these huge high interest rates, the high inflation, all the turmoil that's been caused, I guess, by the war in Ukraine and the pandemic and I guess Brexit previously? What's happened to your business since all of that? But our business, as you say, I mean, the last, particularly in the last 18 months, well, COVID before, and then obviously we had a number of other changes uh, in the macroeconomic and, and the world in general, geopolitically. I mean, we as an insurance always try, I mean, our duty is to actually try to think ahead and be ready to sustain volatility and to do what we are here to do, which is provide long-term savings, stability, and a return to our policyholders. So... I think our business model is actually geared to try and be as stable as possible when we think about volatility of our balance sheet and therefore the security and the stability of the returns. And I have to say that since 2020, in a way, when COVID came along, obviously, where we started to have major changes and movements within the markets, we've been showing and we've been able to, to sustain quite well the volatility and actually continue to deliver the generation of capital and value for both policyholders and shareholders. And I think in the end, the reasons are a few, but obviously we are a very focused player that has invested and continue to invest the majority of its time, effort, skill set, actually to this specific segment of products. You know, when you have a very large insurance business that does, tries to cater clients along the very many, potentially all uh, needs they may have, I mean, the level of bandwidth that you have to deploy is a certain type. We are very focused. We are focused on that specific layer of long-term savings and pension, which allows us also to be extremely precise and focused on how you manage the balance sheet and the volatility. So I think we've seen, and particularly our larger business in the Netherlands has come out of 2022, which was obviously the last end moment of volatility, stronger than when it entered into the year. And therefore, I think we can see how the different elements of work in Greece capital and asset management deliver, you know, the stability we're looking for. It's interesting because I guess your career has been working for kind of big, well-known companies. So to take a leap from one of them and move into an entrepreneurial setting is quite an interesting one. Were there any big challenges that you faced or any kind of things that you did that were very different to what you expected, how you expected that to be? Yeah, so it was very different. And I think two things I would say. One, I worked for mainly in banking. So I've been effectively advising customers for the vast majority of my previous career. And then certainly I was working in very large organizations. And I think those two are, are actually, they were quite different in a way from advising to doing. Uh, obviously that's a mm. big a big change. And I think some, some people like it, some people don't, and some people just prefer to provide others with a range of options and let them choose. And I realized I rather liked choosing and doing myself. And I think that certainly was a very refreshing part of the job. Even if, you know, arguably I worked harder than before, it was a different level of engagement that I achieved. So that element of, 
actually making decisions and making something happen by myself, I thought extremely fulfilling. And the second one is actually, and this is the second part, which is obviously investment banking and in general, the financial service is a world where leadership and management is often, you know, so my role of leadership and management was very different to what I had before to what I had to do here. Before, mm. obviously, Morgan Stanley, Lehman Brothers, Credit Suisse, a company that existed well beyond what I would say or do. And yeah. whereas here, I think we made this start and naturally it ends up being shaped a little bit on how I thought about the world, which obviously is a big privilege, uh, but also a big responsibility. Mm, so you can have a bit more personal impact, you can see the impact of your decisions in a way that you can't when you're in a part of a huge yeah. multinational corporation. It's creating a startup in a very highly regulated sector obviously has sort of very specific challenges that yeah, companies in other sectors may not face. Let's go back to the beginning then for you on your start of your kind of leadership journey. And you've had a career that, as you've mentioned, has taken in a lot of the big banking brands. You've been through all these kind of the big companies. I'm particularly interested in your time at Lehman Brothers. So you were a senior executive at Lehman Brothers on the 15th of September, 2008, the fateful day when the firm filed for bankruptcy in the US, which I think was the largest in US history and was the catalyst for the financial crash. Can you talk me through how you came to be at Lehman Brothers and maybe the days in the lead up to that day? It was a very strong experience, obviously, for myself and for my family and for all of us, uh, in a way. Uh, But I mean, if you think about my work there at Lehman Brothers was, uh, I think I joined in 2002, 2003 now, I don't remember exactly, but I've done a number of things related to European insurance as, as what I've done for the actually most of all of my career. And so that was my work, my job. I advised clients, I did transactions within the European insurance space. And obviously in September, I mean, and before then we saw and we read that the situation obviously was complicated as it was in a number of different places in the market. And, um, and obviously it ended up the way it did. I don't think I certainly, and a lot of others didn't expect and thought that that would eventually happen. And obviously we were not prepared to deal with the consequences let it both from an organizational perspective in how do we take care of our clients and make sure that we have as much continuity of service for what we can do to our clients as well as actually what happened to us overall collectively mm. as a group of people so but obviously i mean in the end of, you know you know the story and so eventually things did evolve and we managed as a group of professionals to take most of the clients and the business to to Nomura, to the Japanese bank that obviously made, I would say, most or all of the particular situation on a contractual perspective still viable. And so I think it was overall something that was managed as well as it could be. Mm. And you stayed with them and went to Nomura, is that right? I did, I did. I stayed for around 18 months. I think it was very important for us collectively. I mean, at the time, I was in investment banking at the time, and I think in order for Nomura to acquire the people that were part of our European investment banking, a minimum number of manager director had to sign up to to actually transition to the new company. And so it all felt also quite a strong responsibility into moving because everybody then continued to have a job. And so that's what we did. And I think we had Nomura to become more, I would say, versed and focused on what was the life insurance sector that they hadn't spent a lot of time in Europe. And that was a very good experience. And I very much also appreciated the support and the help of our Japanese colleagues. Mm. And so can you just give us some colour here? So what was it like the moment you found out, or the moment that the entire company found out that it was going under? You know, how was it announced? Where were you? How did it kind of go down? 
Well, obviously, we realized it on the Sunday afternoon, and I was, I remember, in Milan, and I was there with my wife and two children for a wedding. And so, yeah, we were in Milan, and then obviously in the afternoon, you realized, and we started obviously hearing news and uh, the fact that the, the bank would file for bankruptcy, which obviously they did. And so there was, you know, again, I, I said, we never thought that would happen. So there was this belief and, and a sense of not really knowing what would happen afterwards. And obviously that was the same thing that happened on the Monday. And I was again in Milan, so I wasn't in London. And uh, but obviously we all got called and obviously got explained that actually people didn't know exactly what would happen. So hmm. the way that people, even the people who were much more senior and part of the negotiation didn't know exactly what would happen hmm. And And it took a, a few days for that to start to become more clear into what was in then the PwC work around um, the whole management of uh, of the different bankruptcies uh, chapters. Hmm. And so you've spent well, your whole career basically about managing risk. What kind of advice would you give to others about how to do that? And I'm, I'm thinking particularly about lots of senior leaders at the moment who are looking at the coming storm financially, probably the fallout of the mortgage crisis, etc. that's probably going to hit, some people suggest, at the end of this year. Are there any kind of golden rules about how you manage risk? I think obviously, I mean, a lot of... Of managing risk starts from uh, how you set yourself up into actually the business that you're doing and making sure that that's the way you go into into things is thought through and structured so that you can actually first of all try to minimize what you know the risk of what you know at the time you do something but actually leaves you sufficient flexibility and a sufficiently wide number of levers and you can act on if something goes differently from what you thought actually would happen so to some extent, that is, unfortunately, it is an ongoing process, which if you fail some element of it, is hard to recover, because unless you, obviously, if you're lucky, everything is fine. But, but otherwise, it's, it's quite hard to think about changing the covenants of a loan after you've actually given the loan to someone. So just to make a very simple example. So I think that to us, I mean, and, and to myself, I think the way we try to think about, in a way, in a very... I would say an emotional way around all the different things that can happen when I think about obviously financial elements as what we're talking about, but you can think about more generally because geopolitically, I mean, when you think about, you know, entering into outsourcing agreements now with countries that in, I don't know, five years may be banned and have sanctions. I mean, how do you think about those types of situations? So you really need to think a little bit outside the box, but in a way, as far as you can and lay out the protections that you think you can have at the point of entering something. I think the level of focus and prioritization and management time onto the topics you really care and you want to manage and be the best at is critical. I mean, in the end, if trying to do too many things is, which often people do, we all are lured into trying to be into something new, into something different, to something that is actually growing from what you have. Again, it's, it's fine, but I mean, it, it can't don't detract time from actually the things that really matter, the pillars that re- that matter to the sound and safe management of the business. And then I think uh, lastly, but not least, and there's no particular order into things I'm saying, is actually the level of, I would say, challenge that exists within the team, within the management team, within the views and the way that the team operates. And I think the way that, in a way, we have tried to, we continue to try and, and do that also, and it's not a matter of formal difference between first, second, and third line. Of course, those things 
makes sense. Uh, but I think those are very static view of what is everybody's role. The reality is that everybody's role needs to be to actually contribute and to challenge in a way the others into the right way to make sure that what eventually is decided is not someone's single point of view, mm. but rather the collective balance of the most likely good scenario that will happen in the future. And back to the, some of the questions we were asking earlier, actually, that is something that certainly the governance systems, and if I look at US, Europe, UK, I mean, they're very, very different. And some of them, some of them allow slash force this more than others. And though eventually you may end up long term with different, very different outcomes in terms mm. of actually enforcing the level of debates or challenge that exists within teams. And obviously it goes back to the diversity of the people that you have inside the team. I mean, if everybody thinks in a similar manner, and I think I've seen it here, I mean, when you, I, in that case, have to hire everybody in a way, you end up tending to hire the people you like in a way, of course, hmm. which is obviously nice, but uh, it may not be exactly what you need eventually for the best risk management of what you have in your building as a company. So how you balance all those things, it's obviously there's no science. It's Everybody will do it differently, but it's a very, very fascinating, very difficult job, but certainly you cannot be by yourself. So you need to really be able to share and do it together with your teams. Otherwise, you, by definition, will do it wrong. You mentioned earlier the long hours culture of investment banking. This almost feels like a stereotypical question to ask, but obviously it is a kind of industry very well known for its work hard, play hard culture. You survived it, though. Did you learn anything about work-life balance when you were going through that? What's your work-life balance like now? Well, that's a difficult question. I, I don't know if I've learned my work-life balance. I think you should ask my wife and kids and see what they say. So obviously at a different stage of anyone's career, this question gets answered in very different ways. And the more, you can argue that when you have little choice and you're told what to do, it's bad, but to some extent you have no choice. And therefore maybe you are not that guilty of not having a work-life balance. When you are the one making more choices, then you are guilty because it's you deciding how you spend your time and on what. So I think that question is probably never gonna be fully at least for me, is an ongoing debate around something that I like and I have a lot of passion for. And obviously I came here to shape and to create something that I believe, not just for myself, but for our customers, for our people. And obviously the reality that that's just one element of life. And I think how you make that balance is something that, uh, again, I, I can, sometimes I think I do it well, sometimes I think I do it absolutely not well at all. But I think if I were to try and, and I by no means, like in relationship, you're never done. Eh? You have to continue to put an investment into it. But I think you need, I need, probably everybody needs a bit of a, in a way, when you are in a position like what I had or I have, you, you often become like the compensation chamber for problems. You, know, you actually are the pinnacle at the top where you, your job is actually to diffuse problems and to make sure that eventually things are brought back into a perspective that is more balanced and more and wider than what every one of the people around you would see as they are into their single piece. No? And I think all of that is actually what you have to do. So you cannot complain that you have problems to fix because that's actually your job. No? Hmm. But you do need a way or a, or a moment to decompress, I would say, to decompress the negative elements that by definition come to you into somewhere else. And I think each of us will try and do it differently. But I think it's incredibly important to be structured and diligent about it otherwise in a way you progressively 
deteriorate in a way at the energy and I think then the balance is not there anymore huh? and I think you mm. need to people end up in holes and then they have to leadership holes in a way when they find themselves alone into not knowing what to do and I think you need to try to build bridges against it every single day otherwise you do drift mm, that's interesting what bridges do you build <laughs> what how do, how do you manage that and I, I was struck kind of earlier when you mentioned about being very disciplined about your time and not just doing everything which you obviously could do but really well, focusing in on the things that you have most impact you on. should ask my wife this too and I think she would ter- tell you that I'm the most terrible at timekeeping that uh, <laughs> ter- ter- my worst arguments are as we drive not because I'm a bad driver actually I think I drive very well and in my timekeeping is the fact that my point is that being late by a minute or 10 minutes or an hour is different and she says no one minute is late and I think that's <laughs> true I think the point of how do how do I try I mean again I don't know if I succeed but it's 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 a matter of actually really permanently thinking and having on your desk on my desk what matters and actually trying to think and but actually to represent to myself what has worked and what didn't work in a way in the week before and, and all and how everything that is around you is evolving into the journey and I think being able to articulate and isolate the things that went well the things that didn't go well the people and the things that give you energy the people and things that detract energy and actually give a reason to yourself about why these detractors are there and actually try to call them out write them on a piece of paper and then have a plan around how to try and fix it will at least it does allow me to be I would say much more deliberate and clear on how much time I spend to try and fix the things that don't work. And a lot of the time, if you think about how much time you dedicate to what works and what doesn't work, you end up dedicating the vast majority of your time to what not doesn't work and then being sometimes even emotionally involved in to try and fix it, which obviously makes it even worse. Now, so mm. I think trying to be clear on what those things are and why they don't work and what you should do and could do when you think about it by yourself allow you to actually then be more effective and actually being more real that you know most of these things when you look at them one by one they're not going to determine the collapse i mean they are maybe problematic but they are manageable Mm. and the other things i say to myself as well and to our people all the time is that likely we do not run an open heart surgery no one is going to die if we move something to tomorrow i mean we ought to ask ourselves can i do this tomorrow rather than today Mm-hmm. I, well, I really like that image you have of yeah the CEO. People bring you problems, and you've got to kind of try and contextualize them and calm everybody down and realize it's a kind of keep an eye on the broader goal rather than these individual problems that everybody is individually kind of worked up about. I think that's a a nice way of acting as the kind of umbrella for all of that. Great. So, what's on your agenda now? Then, what's what are you looking for in the future? What's kind of on your radar? Well, I think we are here, as you said, we built and very proud of what we have achieved in the last six years. I think what is ahead of us is actually making sure we consolidate and we are, in a way, giving us as a collective group of people, you know, the structure and the ability to, in a way, use and run with this machine that we built at the speed that we think we can run at, rather than at the beginning you're running, in a way, and you see how you end up to the right place. Now we are much more deliberate around how we do that. So I think there's an element of that which is still very much on our table. And I think the thing that of this makes me, one sign fascinates me, but on the other side obviously makes me very worried, is that in a way 
we've done very well, but in a way we've built something that is a bit insubordinated and a bit messy because we try to be company and we've succeeded today to be reading that reads from the environment and understands what happens around us to change potentially what we need to change to be successful. I mean, we can have a strategy, but we cannot dictate the world. The world happens around us. No? And our success is to read what happens around us and turn it into potential messages or changes to what we want to achieve. So that you do, but then to do that, you need to remain you know, entrepreneurial, as you said, you need to remain challenging of the status quo all the time. No? Mm. And to grow, the more we grow, the more we become actually we are expected to be a more normal company, the more we have a risk of drifting to the mean. So how do we maintain this push, this challenge, this insubordination, which is a little bit structural, but making it a bit more ordered and a little more organized so that actually it becomes more predictable? And I think these two options are typically very different. You have startups and companies which remain creative, or you have you know, companies who are the opposite of creative. They actually totally predictable and just very large and it kind of how you try to do a bit of both is really hard but I think that's kind of what is on our table today and, and we really hope uh, because if we do manage to crack that nut then I think we have something really special because it will become a sustainable culture and operating model that will now can potentially continue to go up to any size we reach so I think this moment for us is pretty crucial. And my last question for you then is what has been your biggest leadership lesson? It's a very hard one. I think it's in a way, I think what I have done here and building a Thor here has uh, required certainly a huge amount of time and effort and personal commitment, not just for myself, but as I said, indirectly, indirectly from my family. But it has, I think, first and foremost, made me, I think, a, a more complete and a better person overall. So I think the element of development it's not just professional, but how you think about, in general, how I think about taking responsibility for everything that is around me has changed very much from before and, and today. And I think it's it then the question is, how do you think about authentic leadership? To me, I would I would move that back to the lesson of how, how can my leadership or leadership remain authentic? And effectively, that authenticity means that it is a, a related point to the people around me, around us. It is not something that happens by itself. It relates to the people that are around us, the tasks that are on our desk, the stakeholder that we have around us. No? And then if I think about in that context that I know it all, if I arrive into that exercise with the presumption to actually know that I know everything myself, that I'm fixated in my view and I tell you what to do because I've done 20 years of thinking now I'm finally ready to do it, I mean, you become more of a dictator there, you know, than a reader. So you, you don't have element the the amount of, let's say, support and co-creation of something. So I think leadership is not telling people what to do in a way. It's actually bringing people to do what they maybe thought and already felt they would be doing. But actually, they're doing with conviction, with support and with impact that eventually gets them to do what is right to do. You know? And but then effectively requires the amount of self-awareness, self-reflection, all the things you have to actually be able to understand and listen. It's actually, to some extent, very different from what people would think about on the way, which is, you know, again, I'm coming in, I'm going to make it happen. It's not, what matters is not your views, eventually. It doesn't need to prevail your view, right? 
eventually you need to make sure the right view is done and I think that is by having all these pieces on the table and being able to thoughtfully consider them that hopefully you get that you know and then the other thing is that people was was say that you know leadership is a solitary job in a way that people are left on their own to make decisions which obviously it's true on paper but again it's very much depends on how much you and how you manage the people around you and how much you think about the leadership as you yourself on the pinnacle or actually you on the front line but with a group of others who are making something happen and the level of i would say loneliness uh, in one or the other is very very different i think that's a great place to end it thank you for being so generous with your time and your thoughts and good luck with athora may it have another brilliant six years ahead of it thank you very much katie it was a pleasure Thank you for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available wherever you get your podcasts.